Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on www.vhha.com and on popular podcast hosting sites and apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that is pcfpodcast at vhha.com. And with that, today we are excited to be joined by UVA Assistant Professor and ICU Director Dr. Tyson Bell, who is a specialist in critical care and pulmonary medicine and whose work in recent months has been on the COVID-19 front lines. Today, we discuss his work, including some recent recognition that Dr. Bell received and his perspective on being politically active and socially engaged in these times. But first, welcome to the program, Dr. Bell. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And, and again, we appreciate you taking some time and a busy schedule. Um, to start with, as I just alluded to, I want to congratulate you on being recognized as one of the 30 leaders under 40 who are changing healthcare by Business Insider, which highlighted your work on a remdesivir clinical trial at UVA, among other accomplishments. Can you just, uh, to begin with, can you provide us an overview of that clinical trial and um, that work and the, the value that it has for patient treatment more broadly? Well, sure. Well, the, uh, this trial was sponsored by the NIH and it was the first high quality randomized trial to show a benefit to a medication used to treat COVID-19. And, uh, we were very excited to have the trial brought to the University of Virginia. The backstory is, uh, we tried to gain entry as a study site into the trial and we were initially told no by the site administrators at the NIH. And I had to do a little bit of investigative work to track down a couple of people and actually get a a phone conversation with the lead investigator, Dr. John Beichel, who I ironically did some work with as a critical care fellow. Uh, We were able to present our case that UVA would be a great site. Uh, We were not having the sort of numbers that we were seeing like in New York City or some of the other major metropolitan areas. But what we did have were a steady number of cases and a lot of research staff and clinical coordinators who were ready and willing to uh, get up and into the hospital to recruit patients. So we assured them that we would have high quality data, a good stream of patients, and we'd be one of their preferred sites as far as making sure there's uh, everything, all the uh, I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So it was exciting to uh, get the trial there up and running and very excited to see the results and, and you know, really put UVA on the map as far as being one of the first sites to really strike back against COVID-19. Up until that point, a lot of the headlines have been just negative um, for COVID-19. We're just learning about transmission and how severe it can be. We're learning about racial disparities and uh, to have a a therapeutic agent was not a silver bullet, but it was something that could help with something that meant a lot to us. Well, you hit on a couple themes that I want to get to in, in just a moment. Over the past few months, we've had a few of your UVA peer colleagues as podcast guests, including Dr. Ebony Jade Hilton and Dr. Leanne Webb, and more recently, Dr. Cameron Webb, who is, for the benefit of our listeners, is in the final weeks of a campaign for Virginia's 5th Congressional District seat. From what I can tell, each of you use your voices in distinctive ways uh, through the outside projects you work on, the political causes you adopt, and even taking to social media to share your firsthand perspective about current events, about racial disparities in healthcare, which you just mentioned and more. I want to get to your political engagement in a moment, but first, I'd just like to hear your thoughts and observations about having a professional support system and how that, among other factors, perhaps helps empower you and your colleagues to be bold and take on causes that may not always have universal uh, appeal or approval. 
Well, I, I would take that much deeper and say that uh, you know, this group of individuals are go far beyond the professional relationship. They are my personal dear friends. Um, in particular, Dr. Webb and I, um, you know, we were college students together at UVA from 2001 to 2005. And actually, his wife, uh, Dr. Mrs. Webb, as, as I like to say, uh, was also that same graduation year. So his wife, him, me and my wife all graduated 2005 together. We were all friends and we decided to come back to Charlottesville together the same year in 2017. So, you know, our friendship is really deep before, but it's only grown deeper. And then adding Dr. Hilton, um, who was already here when we started, uh, was just fantastic. And, and as far as what we do, we support each other. We, we talk almost every day, at least by text. And um, we, we talk about what we're going through, the opportunities that we have. We divvy up things sometimes when it's appropriate. But more importantly, we just encourage each other for what we're doing and celebrate our successes, help each other through the failures. And they're really my rock when it comes to what I've been able to do. So, um, you know, I, I owe so much of what I've been able to accomplish uh, to having them as a support group in a, in a professional network and personal friendships. It's always nice to hear when folks... Uh with with common experiences can band together both professionally and personally. So that's, that's really good. And I'm glad you've got that, that support network there. On the topic of disparities, which we've touched on briefly, and I want to get deeper into it, disparities and outcomes in particular that are attributable to social and environmental factors, as well as access issues. I understand that you're involved in working to improve colorectal cancer screening rates for people of color. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that work in particular and more broadly about uh, the work around addressing healthcare disparities through population health initiatives, other work that you may be involved in, or just the broadening awareness in the medical and healthcare community uh, about the legacy factors that have led to outcome disparities for people from different communities? Uh, well, COVID-19 has certainly allowed us a window through which to explore some of these racial disparities and, and why people have, you know, who have different skin colors or ethnicities might have different outcomes when it comes to uh, really important aspects of healthcare, when it comes to just screening for basic diseases or outcomes for um, contracting things like COVID-19. It's really been an opportunity to uh, learn about these disparities and explore them deeper. Of course, they a pre-existed COVID-19, and it'll exist after COVID-19 has gone away. But some of the same sort of themes emerge. Um, so, you know, you have to ask the question, why is it that a group of people who have a shared ancestry, um, would it be a higher risk for a certain disease process? And what we'd establish in COVID-19, just to use one example, is that having higher rates of pre-existing conditions like heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, kidney disease, these are diseases that will make you less likely to have a good outcome if you were to contract COVID-19. And the same actually connects with influenza and some of the other respiratory illnesses that we can track um, on a year-after-year basis. Now, you have to ask a deeper question. You know, why do these groups of individuals have higher rates of chronic diseases? And why is there less access to healthcare? And a lot of it connects with structural racism and the way that we've structured society historically to favor one group over the other. And, you know, this can be a long-winded answer, but I can just make a couple of direct connections. Rates of obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome directly connect with the diet that you have and your access to um, healthy exercise and, and space. Uh, well, redlining and historical practices that denied opportunities to African Americans in particular uh, were associated with denser neighborhoods that were underinvested in 
with uh, poor access to um, parks and trees and, and facilities to exercise. When you add on top of that, uh, less per capita access to healthcare, so less physicians and nurses in these neighborhoods and practices, less businesses that have capital, um, you can see how a story builds over time where a community becomes economically depressed and from a health outcomes standpoint, depressed as well. And when that's a perfect setup for something like COVID-19, which is, you know, takes advantage of these sort of disparities. So having a chance to have this conversation and to kind of remove the personal blame part of it, because I feel like these discussions get so much caught up into how does one person individually feel about another person and really connecting that with racism. But what we're really talking about is the systemic part of systemic racism. How have our institutions been set up to allow for these disparities to continue and the systemic part of it means that if we don't directly address it to reverse it, the system will continue to produce these results. Um, so it's been um, a good opportunity to talk about this and to explore these topics further. I like the way that you phrased that there just a moment ago about focusing on the systemic part of it. That is perhaps the less polarizing part of it, removing that element which for some people, becomes a stumbling block and saying, hey, let's look at the structural issues here. That's good insight there. Before we move on from this topic, I just wanted to circle back. Did you want to hit uh, the topic about colorectal cancer screening rates and that work at all? Sure. So um, my uh, great-great-grandmother, who I uh, actually uh, lived with until I was in middle school, she actually died of colorectal cancer. And, uh, and she was um, definitely an older in age at that point, but she had never been screened for it because she was afraid of going to physicians, um, not because of, you know, person being afraid of doctors, but not wanting to experience discrimination in healthcare. She um, used to famously tell me that you only go to the doctor and they give you bad news. So she was really hesitant to go seek care for that reason. And it made me think about the historical distrust that a lot of African-American communities in particular, that's my experience in my community, uh, there's a lot of distrust that comes from the healthcare system. And what I tell my students and residents when we have this kind of flare up in the form of a patient who may not be listening to our recommendations, you know, we have to explain to them that that is actually an earned mistrust. Um, the U.S. healthcare system has worked very hard to get on the bad side of Black people when it comes to designing experiments that were unethical to exploit uh, black bodies, um, using mm -hmm. them for medical research, the Tuskegee experiment, yep. grave digging. We can kind of go on and on. These stories get passed down generation by generation, and people remember these things. Uh, so when you approach someone uh, with a recommendation and understanding the history behind these sorts of interactions, understanding how to approach them uh, allows you to take better care of, of these patients. But another part of that is using technology to kind of close that gap. Uh, we know that there's going to be a proportion of, of Americans who aren't going to get colorectal cancer screening. One, because it, it may be tied to this feeling of not wanting to seek that care out for whatever reason. Some of it might be access and cost, and then some of it might be, might be just convenience. And so designing a solution like we're doing at Outpeak Labs to uh, have uh, infrared technology added to pill endoscopy, which is a pill that you swallow that can image your colon, um, can help decrease that screening gap and ultimately get us to a point where we can save more lives because colorectal cancer is a largely treatable cancer. If you catch it early, over 90% of the time, you can have a life expectancy beyond five years. So uh, this is a, a cancer that should not be the number two uh, killer of Americans in the United States. And a lot of that relates to 
health disparities and access to care. And that's exactly what we're trying to combat. Well, it's, it's really good that, that you're sharing those statistics with people publicly and, and focusing on that, particularly in communities where there is some mistrust, as you said, whether it's the examples you cited, the Tuskegee experiments and the vestiges and legacy of that or the Henrietta Lacks case and, and many others. Uh, and I will just say as a personal aside, I'm turning 45 next year. And so one of the things on my list to do next year is to get uh, to get a colonoscopy. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow Dr. Bell's advice. So hopefully everybody else out there who's in that demographic as well. We touched on politics a, a moment ago, and I want to bring it back to that. We mentioned this podcast has hosted several clinicians who hold elective office or are seeking it. Uh, we've had Governor Northam as a guest. We've had Senator Siobhan Donovan, who's an OBGYN uh, in the Richmond area. We mentioned your friend, Dr. Webb, who's a candidate for Congress. Uh, just recently, we had uh, Danville Vice Mayor Gary Miller, who's a cardiologist. And with each of those guests, we've asked them for their perspective on the intersection of politics, healthcare, and public policy. And that's taken on new dimensions this year as society at large and, and the world deals with this global pandemic and this public health crisis. I want to get your thoughts on that intersection between politics and public policy and health care. And I, I ask it through the prism of a TV ad I saw recently. As I said, I, I know that you are engaged and, and share your views as your colleagues do on social media and other platforms. And I just saw recently that you are the star of a campaign ad for former Vice mm-hmm. President Joe Biden, who is running for president on the Democratic ticket this year. Uh, so I wanted to ask you broadly sort of your thoughts about that intersection and then specifically about how that campaign commercial came about and, and things of that sort. Sure. So uh, a fascinating concept because, you know, I think the definition and, and your feeling could evolve over time in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And that certainly was the case for me. Um, I am not a political person at all and have no intent of running for any sort of political office. I think that my place is firmly by the bedside and working on innovation to improve access to care from the, the medical lane. Um, so it's been interesting to um, to have close friendships and to have interactions with the political process. Um, but before this, um, you it's very unlikely you would hear a peep from me about what my political leanings are, who I support. I felt that as a physician, it's better that I try to be nonpartisan, at least when it comes to what I say publicly in order to you know protect that patient uh, physician relationship. What's been different about this crisis is uh, honestly, Asking yourself the question, what is the best thing that I can do to save as many lives as possible? Um, so my decision to participate in a political ad supporting President Biden, in my mind, actually was not political at all. It just connects with uh, the question I keep asking myself, what is the best that I can do to help impact my community? So early on in the crisis, it was fighting to roll out testing and to get that available widespread so that we can test people in the community. When it became a PPE crisis and a crunch in our supply chain, it became working with others, engineers and seamstresses across the university and the, and the community to help produce PPE for my colleagues and myself in nursing homes and other facilities that needed PPE. When we started exploring racial disparities in healthcare, it became advocating for my community that I'm a part of and making sure that we're, that we're looking through our response to an equity lens. But then at some point along the way, it became very clear that our response from the top was inadequate. And that's not to say that any leader would have handled this perfectly. I think, you know, anyone would have made mistakes because this is an unprecedented pandemic. It's you know, moved quicker than we've been able to keep up with. I don't think anyone would have handled this perfectly. 
But what I saw consistently was undermining of public health experts, not listening to advice that were coming out, and not setting the example of what Americans can do to, to keep themselves safe. And I point specifically to things like social distancing, wearing masks, trying to avoid tight and closed spaces. If our leaders set an example of doing this, you know, we can have our political fights along, you know, whatever avenues we want. But if we set an example that we're supposed to wear a mask when we're out or inside and we're supposed to have social distancing, then it does not become a partisan issue. And as we saw cases rise and rise, particularly in areas where you know, we were still having these fights about um, personal freedom versus public health, the economy versus public health, when they really should be partners, it became clear to me that we needed a fundamental change in our leadership. In my mind, it, there's not a Democratic way to respond to this crisis. There's not a Republican way to respond to the crisis. But there's a way that incorporates the science and puts that person in the forefront and lets everything else follow that. And then you use that as a tool to open the economy and get children back in schools. So when it became clear to me that the administration was not following this and undermining the interests of public health and my patients and the, and the country at large, that's when I decided, you know, this is a moment that I need to use my skill set and my experience to actually speak out against this. So I'm very much looking forward to the day when this all goes away and I can go back to the bedside and, and, and just focus on, you know, what I became a physician for. But um, but I, I just felt that if I didn't speak out against this, something that was impacting my community, a community that I grew up in and has invested so much in me, you know, when else am I going to speak out about anything? You know, it had to be this moment. Completely understandable um, rationale for getting involved and focusing on the public health aspects of it and the patient well-being perspective. So with that covered... I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you a few more personal questions to give our listeners a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do. Dr. Bell, the first question is this. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, Best piece of advice um, that I've been given came from one of my mentors at Columbia University when I was in medical school. And it was... um, it was a time where I was struggling a lot with trying to keep up with my studies along with make sure that my family was healthy. My grandmother was having health issues at the time. And I felt like no one really understood what was going on and I needed a friend. And I, I went into um, the Dean of Diversity, Dr. Hilda Hutcherson, sat in her office, actually cried. There's so much I was going through. And she told me that you know, the, the scars that you carry is what informs what you do later in life. So what you're going through now is only going to make you stronger and more effective later. And that really put a lot of my upbringing, the struggles that I've had. I grew up of a very meager means in Lynchburg, Virginia. I was the first to go to college on both sides of my family. You know, it has been a long, hard road. But where I am now, understanding that struggle and how all these things that I've gone through have only made me a better physician, ultimately, a better friend, a better husband, a better partner. I have an ability to put that in context now and to you know, think about this struggle for COVID-19 and to try to think about how am I going to emerge a better person out of this? How am I going to emerge a better physician and a better dad out of this? And I try to take those struggles and put them in the context for you know, what's going you know, to be the good change coming out of it. Well, we all are, as, as that advice you got from your academic advisor, we all are a product of our experiences and the challenges that we've overcome. And as they say, what doesn't take you out makes you stronger. So that is good advice. 
The next question I have for you, sir, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? Um, it would probably be Chick-fil-A. Okay. Uh, nuggets, sandwich, uh, something else? It would be a spicy chicken sandwich uh, with fries and a lemonade, which um, I'm going to eat this right after we're done. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> That's my go-to. It can't happen on a Sunday. That's the only problem. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question for you is, uh, what's the top item on your bucket list? I would love to go to the Taj Mahal. This is something that I, I just think it's a beautiful building. Um, it's very iconic. It has a storied history behind it. And my son and I, my son is six years old. He likes to travel. I actually went to India last year as a part of my business school foreign trips that we take. And I decided not to go to the Taj Mahal because I wanted to share that moment with my son. So um, on my bucket list is to go out to the Taj Mahal and during a sunrise, uh, sip some tea with my son while we uh, watch the sun glitter off the, uh, the edge of the roof. Sounds like a great father-son bonding moment. And then finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island... What one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself occupied? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? So it's a book, a movie, and what else? And an album. And an album. All right. So my book would be Lord of the Flies, uh, which is ironic for being stranded on an island, but it is. Um, it's one of my it's one of my favorite books because it explores so deeply the um, the concept of humanity and who we are. Whoever holds the conch gets to speak. That's the rule. Is this like assembly, sir? Yeah. Except anybody who wants to speak gets to. But not before they get the conch. Right. Um, the movie would probably um, let me think about this. The, the movie would probably be Lion King, the original Lion King. I remember seeing that kid, that movie when I was a kid. It was just fantastic. Just the opening scene um, with the uh, with the singer uh, just takes me back there and um, to a, a happy happy place in my life. And then uh, it's an album. Yes, sir. Um, it would be. Um, it would probably be Jay-Z's The Blueprint. Okay. Um, yeah, they actually, um, Reasonable Doubt, his very first album. Um, he was uh, a very he's a very inspiring rapper and artist, uh, but what he talks about on this album is this inflection point between transitioning from the street life, which is what he was accustomed to, and transitioning to a businessman and a rapper and owning a company, and also some of the struggles associated with that. He was told no. Uh, he couldn't have a, a record uh, a record company and, uh, and a spinoff, so he decided to just make a company himself. And throughout the album, you can kind of see these two sides of himself competing with each other and eventually the business mogul part of himself winning out. So it's a great example of personal transformation, using your struggles to inform and make you a better person and ultimately become a better version of yourself, um, forecasting that vision forward. Well, your friend Dr. Webb, 
selected uh, Hard Knock Life from Volume 3. So there's there's some overlap and similarity there, I, I will say on a personal note. Uh, Reasonable Doubt is a great album. Um, the song that, all, for whatever reason, always sticks with me um, on that album is uh, is 22-2s. Uh, I just, I, I, oh, love, yeah. I, I love the lyricism on that one. So. Of course, yeah. Okay, well, listen, with that, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to thank our guest, Dr. Tyson Bell of UVA, for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 